our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Jesus was born into a world full of violence. Not the start of a happy Christmas message, but as we look at the historical period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't have silence, right? Rather, we have kingdom rising against kingdom, nation fighting against nation, and the Jewish people fighting their way to freedom through the power of the sword. About 200 years before Christ, the Greeks who ruled over Israel, they banned the practice of Judaism and they slaughtered those who resisted. But the Jews wouldn't give in so easily. Led by Judas the Maccabee, literally Judas the hammer, zealous Jews donned their swords and they threw off the yoke of their Gentile overlords, massacring thousands in their wake. A few decades later, the Maccabees reclaimed their religious and their political freedom and they set up a kingdom through violence, Force. The success of the Maccabean swords would shape the way that the Jewish people in Jesus' day would understand and would attempt to inaugurate the kingdom of God. But then Jesus bursts onto the scene and he begins to teach and he begins to preach about the kingdom. And last week, Pastor Dave shared with us about the kingdom declared. How Jesus comes to us with an invitation to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and so Jesus does not bring a kingdom to fruition through violence and through a sword. Rather, he does it through repentance. He inverts the expectations of those who are awaiting a violent revolutionary to set the people free. One theologian talking about this upside-down kingdom, he says this, he, Jesus, also talked about loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, and giving your left cheek to the one who hits you on the right. Even Pilate was confused when the Jews accused Jesus of being a nuisance to Rome. The Roman governor must have laughed to himself when Jesus talked about setting up a kingdom without fighting. Every kingdom ever established has always been set up by fighting, and of course, by winning the fight. This foolish Jew is out of his mind, Pilate must have thought. I find no guilt in him, he declared in John 18. But as it turns out, the Jews turned his hand and they got their wish, and Jesus received the death penalty for treason. It is through being defeated by earthly powers that Jesus conquered the spiritual forces of evil and set up his kingdom. This is an upside-down kingdom where leaders are servants, where neighbors and enemies are loved, and poor widows give away half of their money. Under the lordship of King Jesus, humility is what is exalted. The first shall be last. Offenders are forgiven 70 times seven, and ethnic outsiders kneel down to help half-dead strangers lying in a ditch. The way of Jesus is countercultural. It is an upside down kingdom. It is a kingdom where weakness is power, 
where power is weakness and where suffering ultimately leads to glory. And so today we want to continue on through the book of Matthew as we explore what it means to be a kingdom citizen. How does being invited into the kingdom shape who we are, our actions, our values, our attitudes, and how does it shape who we are becoming today? And we're going to do that by looking at a portion of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's called that for the location that Jesus is speaking from. However, many commentators, theologians, when they talk about this passage, they don't use that term. They prefer titles that relate a little bit more to the meaning of what Jesus is teaching. Michael J. Wilkins, he refers to this sermon as the Kingdom Life Proclamation. John Mark Comer refers to it as Jesus' manifesto on the inbreaking of the kingdom of God which is a bit of a mouthful, but powerful. Right, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and the section that we'll be looking at today, the Beatitudes, are in many ways the ethos of the kingdom of God. Right, they're the ethos of what it means to be a citizen and to have a full life in the kingdom. And so today we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bible in front of you, you can uh, turn there with me. The passages are also going to be on the screen. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, which is the second section of the Bible, and it concerns the life of Jesus and the impact he has. So this will be Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a powerful opening to a sermon. I love the Beatitudes because every time I read them, and I'm, I'm very familiar with these, I'm sure many of you have read these verses many times before or heard them many times before, but every time I read them, I get a little bit of a heart check. Right? They throw me for a loop because even though I've seen them so many times and I've heard them so many times, they seem so opposite to what I believe. Right? The Beatitudes really are an inversion of what me might think of as common wisdom. Right? Dallas Willard, he calls this, the Beatitudes a list of God-based inversions. Tom Wright cleverly puts it that Jesus here takes us through the sound barrier where things work backwards. It's talking about a film from the 1950s called The Sound Barrier, whereas a plane passes through the sound barrier, the controls invert. And the science of that movie is not at all accurate. It's been debunked, but it's this great picture of how as we come through this barrier, as we come through this threshold, as the kingdom of heaven is breaking into our world, our values, our expectations, and who is blessed changes. It flips things on their head. Now, the word blessed that's used here, other translations you may have used the word happy. It's more than just a circumstantial feeling of happiness, right? This is a state of well-being and relationship to God that belongs to those who have responded to Jesus. And I really love historical context. 
Right? If you've heard me preach before, you've likely heard Jewish history or Greek history or church history. And I love these things because I feel like the more we know who Jesus is speaking to and the culture that he's talking to, the better we can understand what he's saying to us today. And so there's a book known as the Book of Sirach, or the Wisdom of Sirach. And it was written around uh, 200 years before the time of Jesus. This is a book of Jewish wisdom that Jesus and his contemporaries would likely have been familiar with. And this is what it says in the book of Sirach. It says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed and a tenth that my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes, happy, remember happy and blessed come from the same word, happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who's not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. So this is the book of common Jewish wisdom. So who would the Jewish people have thought of as blessed? Well, those who take pride in their children, those who are victorious over their foes, those who don't serve those who are below them, those who have friends, those who have influence, those who speak well. And I think most of us, we probably look at that list and we go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That sounds really reasonable. And we often churchify the values of the world and we kind of make those the measure of, of blessing or of spiritual maturity, right? We see someone and they're, they're really confident and they're self-assured and they speak well or we, have, we see somebody who has great stories of conversion or someone who reads many books or reads their Bible every day and has these robust spiritual practices. We see people who are, are really successful and they're wealthy and they can give out of their wealth and their resources. Or we see the picture-perfect family that's Instagrammable and we look at that and we go like, man, those people are blessed. That person is, is meaningful. That person is having kingdom impact. But the Beatitudes show us that power and self-reliance and self-confidence are not the ways of the kingdom. If the story of the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that the one who is blessed by God is Jesus. And those who he blesses are those who take on his ways and his manners and they extend them to others. Jesus was poor and he was humble. Jesus burned up his days pursuing righteousness and justice. And Jesus created God's peace wherever he went. So who is blessed in this new kingdom? Well, it is the meek. It is the merciful, it is the poor in spirit, it is those who are persecuted for righteousness, it is those who mourn. In Jesus' kingdom, the blessed are not who we expect they to be. The kingdom of heaven flips conventional wisdom on its head. The Beatitudes are also a guiding principle for our lives. We'll jump back into our passage in Matthew chapter five, verse two. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? It is those who recognize their need for God's help. Right, there might be an economic component to it, but this largely refers to this idea of spiritual bankruptcy. Recognizing that we have nothing of ourselves, nothing of value that we can offer to God. Right? And again, it flips the wisdom of the world on its head where we think those with great resources and wealth are blessed and it says that those who recognize that they have nothing to offer are those who are blessed. Right? It echoes the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. 
Or as Kelvin wrote, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. The kingdom is given to the poor, not to the rich. It is given to the feeble, not to the mighty. It is given to little children who are humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain this kingdom through their own powers. We are becoming citizens of the kingdom when we recognize our own spiritual lack, that we have nothing to offer the kingdom, and we simply turn to Jesus. We continue in Matthew 5.4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when we lose anything that we count as valuable, we can end up in a state of mourning, right? This can be financial loss or uh, loss of security or loss of title or loss of status, or it can also be the loss of a loved one. Now, mourning doesn't mean that we cannot also experience joy. It says in Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And in our lives, we're gonna have good times, we're gonna have bad times, we're gonna have easy times, we're gonna have hard times, but all of us are gonna experience some form of pain and loss. And commentators often think that there's two meanings for this passage. The first, mourning those that we have lost, right? Like our friends, our family members, our loved ones. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those who mourn can take comfort in the fact that those who have passed are with God. The other meaning that commentators ascribe to this past, to this beatitude is mourning the loss of righteousness, right? Mourning the loss of innocence, mourning our own sinful nature. John Stott speaks to this. He says, was Ezra mistaken to pray and to make confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God? Was Paul wrong to groan, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And to write to the sinful church of Corinth, ought you not rather to mourn? I think not. I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes make light of our sin. But whatever meaning you ascribe to, the truth is that those who mourn, those who experience pain, and those who experience loss, we can all take ultimate hope in the promise of comfort in this kingdom. Continue in Matthew 5, 5. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What are, who are the meek? The meek are those who don't put themselves over others, right? It's someone who is not domineering, but rather puts their trust in God. One definition of meek is someone who is quiet and gentle and easily imposed upon or sub submissive, but meekness is not weakness. A better definition within the biblical context would be one who can endure injury with patience and without resentment. Jesus models this for us by being gentle and humble in his ministry. However, Jesus still stands firm. He's not afraid to confront the religious leaders. He's not afraid to rebuke his disciples. And ultimately, Jesus will endure great pain and suffering as he faces persecution. And ultimately, he will face the cross. We too are called to walk with gentleness and humility and to endure. Continue in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, righteousness in the book of Matthew has two different components. The first is the idea of ethical behavior, right? Are we acting in a way that's righteous? Are, we, are our actions and what we do righteous? 
The other understanding more in line maybe with what Paul teaches on righteousness is less focused on our actions and our behaviors, but more on how we are marked as pure and as innocent before God. Now those who hunger and those who thirst, that means somebody who is in desperate need. And often in the West, we don't really understand what it means to hunger and thirst. I have some friends who are involved with a, an orphanage in Eswatini, and it's a, a whole town that's been turned into an orphanage. And I remember one story that was shared with me. They had a, a boy who came in, and he had been on his own for a very long time, and he had had quite a bit of food insecurity. And so as he came, and they'd have meals. He would always eat part of his meal, and he would stash away some of the food for later. He'd hoard these bits and these pieces and either carry them with him or stash them away until they were bad and moldy and rotten. And so eventually they just started giving him a bag of oranges to carry around. And then they'd swap them out every time they started to go bad until he learned that there was food. But this is a picture of what it means to hunger and thirst, right? To have a desperation to cling onto what little righteousness we have. And in the same way, we should have this hunger and this thirst and this desperation for righteousness, for right actions and for right behavior, to be desperate to come into right relationship with God. Jesus continues later in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the the most righteous, right? They're the holiest people in the Jewish religious system. They're the most pure. They're experts on the law. But in many ways, their righteousness was self-righteousness, right? It was righteousness that they achieved through their actions. This beatitude flips that, right? The phrase is, they will be satisfied, or they will be filled, as other translations use it. This phrase is, is what we call a divine passive, meaning it's not an action that we take or an action that we initiate. It is God who is at work to satisfy us, to fill us with righteousness. So when we hunger and when we thirst, And when we are desperate for righteousness in our own lives, we are blessed because God makes us righteous, right? God satisfies our desire for righteousness. Now, these first four Beatitudes, in some ways, they form a bit of a a progression, right? We are blessed when we are poor in spirit and recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We recognize that we have nothing to offer. Then we are blessed when we mourn over our sinful nature and over our wickedness. We are blessed when we are meek and allow humility to mark our behavior towards God and towards others. And we are blessed when we are desperate for righteousness and seek to move away from the sinful nature we're in and to come into right relationship with God and right action to God. And as we move from these first four blessings, these first four beatitudes, they, they relate more to us and our relationship with God. These remaining four focus more on our relationship with other people. It says in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the religious leadership in Jesus' day, they tended to be merciless. Right? They had this rigorous demand for the law, and their, their motive was commendable. They wanted everyone to be pure. They wanted people to be righteous. But it was inexcusable because they had these unbending demands. They produced harshness and they produced condemnation towards everyone who did not meet their standards. We get an amazing picture of this beatitude at work in Matthew chapter 18, right? Jesus, he describes the kingdom of heaven in this way. Imagine a servant who owes his master 10,000 talents. And a talent is around 19 to 20 years worth of wages. So this is an immeasurable amount of money for one man, right? He has this exorbitant amount of money to pay back. And when the master comes, he says, I want to collect my payment. The servant pleads, and the master ultimately decides to forgive his debt. 
The same servant then goes to another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. And a denarii is about a day's wage. And when that servant cannot pay back, he begins to choke him and he has him sent off to prison. And so we have 200,000 years worth of wages, you know, Jeff Bezos level money here versus a few months salary. And someone goes and reports this to the master. And in the story Jesus is telling, this is what he says. It's Matthew 18, 32. It says, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Right? We are blessed when we are merciful because we will receive much greater mercy from God. Continue Matthew 5, 8. says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And for the Jewish people, it was important to be ceremonially and ritually pure. Right? There's many laws concerning ritual purity and washing, and this was a large focus on external purity. But Jesus flips this and he says, no, we gotta focus on internal purity. So we have these two types, internal and external. Many of the, the religious leaders, they had a pure outside. Right? They were clean according to ceremonial law. They were, they were clean according to the washing and the things that were a part of temple life. However, this external purity is not purity of the heart. Right, would you rather drink from a cup that's clean on the outside and filthy on the inside or one that's clean on the inside and filthy on the outside? Right, a cup that's clean on the outside might look really good, but the water inside is murky and it's defiled. Whereas something that's clean only on the inside, it may look bad, but the water is pure and it is clean. It echoes the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It is the pure in heart who will see Jesus, who will see God future tense. There's also a more immediate fulfillment of this, right? Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so those who set their hope on Jesus, those who accept Jesus as their Savior, they will see God in the flesh. Continue in Matthew 5, 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Right, we often think of peace as simply being the absence of conflict or the absence of tension, but the Jewish word for peace is shalom. It's this much bigger picture of completeness, of wholeness, of tranquility. One commentator, he compares the words of Jesus to the attitudes of many who were building their own kingdoms. He says this, the zealots of Jesus' day attempted to bring self-rule back to Israel through guerrilla warfare tactics and through dividing and conquering. And the religious leaders brought as much division within Israel by their sectarian commitments. But the real peacemakers are those who bring the good news that your God reigns. As Jesus brings the kingdom into the world, as he brings us this invitation to join in, he is acting as the ultimate peacemaker. He is making peace between us and God. And we are invited to be a part of that. Invited in to a relationship with God, invited into the mission of spreading that to others and being inviters into the same peace, the same wholeness, and the same kingdom. Continue in Matthew 5, 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, before we talk a little bit more about this, I want to make one thing clear, and that's we have a really underdeveloped idea of persecution here in Canada, right? When we compare ourselves with our brothers and sisters and believers who are throughout the world, we don't really get persecution in the same way. That doesn't mean there's not going to be times we face hardship or derision or persecution, but uh, there are, I think, a lot of people that use this idea of being blessed for persecution as an excuse to be intentionally inflammatory or divisive or domineering, right? They use this idea of, oh, I want to be blessed for persecution as an excuse to behave in a way that gets a reaction. To put it maybe a little more simply, they use this idea of being blessed for persecution as an excuse to be a jerk. But we're not blessed when we face persecution for being a jerk, We're not blessed for our persecution, for our own ego, or for our pride, or for our ambition. We are blessed when we face persecution for our righteousness. God is pleased when he sees that we value him and his ways more than inconvenience and trouble and whatever the world might throw at us. Few men of this century have understood this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He seems never to have wavered in his Christian antagonism to the Nazi regime, although it meant for him imprisonment, the threat of torture, danger to his family, and finally his death in the Flossenburg concentration camp. But in many ways, that was the fulfillment of what Bonhoeffer always taught and what he believed, that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. When we are persecuted for righteousness, we are aligning ourselves with Christ who was persecuted for his righteousness. When we pursue righteousness above pain and suffering and inconvenience and anything that the world tells us is better, we are aligning ourselves with Christ. Now, this is not a command to seek out persecution. right? We should not go out of our way to find ways to be persecuted. Rather, this is a proclamation that in this new kingdom that we are invited into, if and when we face persecution, we are blessed. And so the Beatitudes show us the inverted wisdom of the kingdom. The Beatitudes give us these guiding principles as to the values of this new kingdom. The Beatitudes are also a kingdom proclamation. The first and the eighth blessing, as we read them, are in present tense, right? Verses 3 and verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They show us that the kingdom is already at hand. The kingdom is near. But the middle six blessings, they are future tense, They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called children of God. This is pointing us towards the future. And so we end up in some ways with this sandwich of promises. Promises for now and promises for the future. And we come to understand that for us, there is tension to be citizens of this kingdom that is already here in the present and is also continuing to come in the future. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives instructions for us on how to pray. He says in Matthew 6, 9 to 10, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are a part of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And we are citizens of this new kingdom that is already here in part and yet is still coming into this world. And the Beatitudes point us towards this present and this future kingdom. We are called to pray and to live as if this new kingdom is fully here and to make God's kingdom come and his will be done here on the earth. 
I'll invite the worship team to come up as I close, but I think N.T. Wright has perhaps the best summary of what it means to live as kingdom citizens. This is what he says. He says, the life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God has always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount and the point of these Beatitudes in particular. They are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense of God's promised future. Because that future has already arrived in the present through Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is in fact right ways up. Becoming kingdom citizens means that we live in the inverted wisdom and the guiding principles of a kingdom that is and is to come. Each of us is invited to participate. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are invited into the kingdom. We thank you that you have offered us a new way to live. And I ask that you would help each of us to see and to better understand your true wisdom and help each of us to find ways to bring your kingdom come to the earth today. Amen.